Welcome to The Upshot. I'm Leah Rose. Today I'm talking to Andrew Leonard, who wrote Long Live the Empress for the April issue of San Francisco Magazine. Andrew's story takes a look at how the closure of an iconic Chinese restaurant and banquet hall called the Empress of China may be a sign that San Francisco's Chinatown is on the brink of serious social and cultural change. While Andrew argues that the neighborhood's immigrant community provides a built-in resistance to gentrification, there's a possibility that wealthy Bay Area techies could soon infiltrate Chinatown and move into iconic spaces like the Empress of China that is currently being advertised as an ideal space for creative technology tenants. And with two new foodie-centric restaurants opening on Grand Avenue in the coming months, Chinatown may soon shift from a cultural center to just another destination for upscale revelry. Here's my conversation with Andrew. What is the Empress of China and what is so significant about its closing? The Empress of China is a six-story building in the heart of Chinatown, overlooking Grant Avenue and Portsmouth Square, that has... It's not the oldest building. It was built in the 60s, but it has a lot of symbolic uh, cultural importance. It was built by one of the leading families of Chinatown. And from the very beginning, the top two floors were dedicated to what was planned to be the marquee premier restaurant in Chinatown. That's the Empress of China. And then what happened in the 80s? Why did it all of a sudden become or or what changed about Did something change about the space? Did something change about the neighborhood of Chinatown? Part of it's that people just don't go to big banquets as much as they used to. Um, Third, fourth generation. Um, I talked to one woman who has written a bunch of cookbooks and lived in Chinatown, and and I guess her quote was, your fourth generation young Chinese-American woman would rather go to Napa for her wedding than (laughs) a a 50-year-old building in in Chinatown. Right, yeah. It's a little antiquated. Um, There were also issues with the family that owned the building and was involved with the restaurant not reinvesting. So the place was just falling apart. You made a point. You drew really special attention to the way that the real estate ad for the Empress of China building, um, the way the ad was written. What was so significant to you about the way that it was being marketed? It wasn't so much the way it was written, which was one part. It was the picture, the mock-up that they used to describe what this should look like, um, which made it look like the inside of Google or Twitter or Facebook. And if you've ever had been to the Empress of China or just walked down Grant Avenue, you'd kind of have a visceral response to that picture. This does not look like Chinatown. This is... This is you know, complete takeover by tech. And and in San Francisco right now, that that's a pretty hot-button issue. You know, the Mission has a new condominium every day displacing some art space or, you know, Latino market, and, and people are pretty anxious about it. Chinatown's got such a long history and distinct culture that I was originally assigned to this story to figure out, was the sale of this building the first step in tech-driven gentrification? was what's happening to the rest of San Francisco about to happen to Chinatown. Yeah, I was curious if you saw the sale of this building as yet another indication that San Francisco may be becoming a monoculture. Well, that was what I was charged to investigate. After spending months talking to people and wandering around, I I came away thinking that that's not really that likely to happen. Chinatown has some built-in characteristics that make it 
um, for better or worse, much more resistant to change than other parts of the city. Why is that? I thought that was really interesting. You said there's a built-in resistance to gentrification, partly because of the immigrant culture. Um, What are some other reasons why that is? There's two or three factors. One is uh, kind of a unique concentration of ownership of the housing stock. Nonprofits like the CCDC, the Chinese Community Development Corporation, and the family associations own about 40% of the housing in Chinatown. And the family associations are kind of permanent institutions. They don't, you know, there's no pressure to sell ever and make a quick profit. They're there to support their own slice of the community. So they just keep renting to the retail outlets in the bottom floor and have these really cheap rental places in the top. And they, they, there's not that same kind of let's get rich quick. In the, in the mission, most of the apart housing stock is owned by big corporations that own tons of housing. So they're looking to make a a profit whenever they can. The immigration part is is interesting too because Chinatown continues to be the first stop for new Chinese immigrants. And as a result, it's it's one of the kind of poorest parts of the city, but it also kind of continually refreshes the um, the family associations with new members um, and it creates this imperative, you know, to you know feed and house these people you need cheap housing and, and and cheap food. So that kind of everywhere else you have this new the newcomers coming in tend to be considerably more uh, affluent. And Chinatown has a steady influx of poor and a lot of in-house elderly for the last few generations, which makes it a lot different. Did you see in reporting this story, did it seem like there's any threat to those resources that are there that are providing for people who are um, newly immigrating to San Francisco? Um, there's always threat, but Chinatown is pretty politically connected. Um, you know, the mayor's Chinese, board of supervisors has usually two or three Chinese members. Rose Pack is considered the power behind the throne in, in San Francisco politics. So the city has a lot of, the, 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 the neighborhood has a lot of power to kind of restrict who does what. And this is one of the problems that the owners of the Empress of China building kind of stumbled into. They don't appear to really have done their homework in marketing this as a tech building. It became quickly clear that all those buildings in that area are zoned for mixed use. That's supposed to be in keeping with the spirit of that street. To get waivers, you know, that would allow you to do something else, you'd need to get permission from City Hall. And that's not going to happen if it's not in accordance with what the kind of community of Chinatown wants. So is it is it not possible that the building could turn into some big tech company? We, it is totally not possible. We don't know what's going to happen. As of press time, uh, I'd heard rumors that they'd gotten no offers from the building. The family itself was saying, oh, we have lots of offers and we're choosing between them. You should delay your story. Yeah. You know, maybe you shouldn't write your story at all. And it's like, well, <laughs> as of this moment, it hasn't been sold. I think it's pretty clear that it's not going to turn into a tech office from top to bottom. Okay. And the reason it hasn't been sold, what what are your theories about that? Is it is it priced too high? They priced it too high. It's completely run down. So to bring it up to code is going to be hugely expensive. And there's a real question, which gets us into a whole separate set of issues, what you could put into it that would 
make enough money to pay back all that investment. Because Chinatown's economy is depressed. If you walk down Grand Avenue, which is the street that the Empress is on, you're going to see a lot of really low-budget tourist souvenir shops, T-shirt shops, um, you know, more of them than you can imagine could be profitable at the same time. And they've been there forever. They've been there forever. And um, as a whole, the neighborhood hasn't seen a lot of reinvestment. So there's this contradiction because merchants on that street do want to uh, get, you know, a little bit of gentrification as long as it's in tune with community values. They would like to see fancy new restaurants and, and they just didn't want to see a complete – something at complete variance to the tradition. Speaking of fancy restaurants, you mentioned two new chefs who are bringing two new foodie-type restaurants into Chinatown. Um, but they come from two totally different backgrounds and maybe their visions for what they're building are pretty different. Can you tell us about their plans and, and who they are? They are they are very different. Um, one of them is, is the brainchild of a pretty well-regarded cook in the city, Brandon Ju, who's third or fourth generation Chinese-American, whose grandmother grew up in Chinatown. Uh, and he was invited by the landlord of a building that has a lot of history in Chinatown. Um, it was actually in the 20s and 30s and 40s the site of the Hong Far Lo restaurant, which is the first famous Chinese restaurant in the United States. It dates all the way back to the 1860s. It, you know, it had a pre-earthquake existence. And then it became a restaurant called the Four Seas, which was another huge banquet restaurant that ran into the same economic forces that challenged the empress. And the landowner, the landlord, Betty, Betty Louie, invited Brandon Jew to come in and, and uh, do what she hopes is a, a kind of high cuisine Chinese restaurant that will make Chinatown once again a destination for quality cuisine. And he, you know, he's your classic San Francisco hipster foodie um, he wants to bring fresh ingredients, seasonal foods. He wants it in tune with his own grandmother's, the, the, the food that she cooked when he was growing up. He wants to teach classes. He wants to make his own soy sauce and oyster sauce and have classes there that teach people how to make it and maybe spur this whole like artisanal uh, ecology around him. Um, seems very in tune with both San Francisco values and with Chinatown values. But the high-end aspect makes you wonder – you know, it, it'll have to draw in outsiders to survive. Yeah, like who's going? And, who's the demographic? Yeah. And those outsiders now don't think of Chinatown as the place to go for good food. They're going to go to the Richmond. They're going to go. There's a mall in the East Bay, which is packed every every weekend, um, and you know, or the South Bay. So it's an open question. But he's he's definitely got a lot of uh, lot going for him. A lot of high aspirations. Yeah. And then what about George Chen? George Chen is the guy behind China Live, which is a very ambitious project. Uh, it, it's it's kind of modeled off of, off of Mario Batali's Italy, which is a big high-end food court in, in New, New York. York. Yeah, uh, It's going to have a downstairs restaurant for kind of the general public, but a super elite eight tables. It's called eight tables restaurant upstairs that he wants to serve the best Chinese food in the world. There's going to be a retail outlet they're marketing like an Apple store where everything is supposed to be high end. Um, he, too, has a long tradition in Chinese food. He was involved with several high end restaurants in San Francisco. 
Um, he is not connected to the kind of community of Chinatown. He's a Mandarin speaker. Most of Chinatown is Cantonese. Uh, he came from Southern California. So they, it, some of the, the, the locals consider him an outsider. You write that Chinatown needs uh, an infusion of fresh blood, fresh investment, fresh ideas. Do those ideas need to come within the Chinese community to be viable? Or could they also come from tech companies? I think they absolutely have to have some connection to the local community. I think that's the lesson of the Empress of China is that when they – they the backstory that didn't really get into the articles is the family um, that owns the building is you know now in its third generation. There's maybe 60 cousins. Um, there may have been some economic pressure like let's get out and split up this money and they pushed forward without a real plan in advance and without really consulting – um, the power brokers in the community. They chose a real estate agent that had no ties to the community, which riled some people. Um, and so far, they haven't been able to sell the building. I think in in Chinatown, you need to work with the power structure that's there. Um, and it's, I think, important not just to Chinatown, but to the city as a whole, that what makes Chinatown special is its, is its history. Uh, from the beginning of San Francisco. And you don't want to lose that um, in any kind of pell-mell gentrification. Oh, thank you, Andrew, for your story. It was really, really interesting. Thanks for having me. The Upshot is produced by Justin Richmond. Thank you again to our guest, Andrew Leonard. And thanks to John Steinberg at San Francisco Magazine for sponsoring today's episode. If you like us, please subscribe to The Upshot on iTunes and Stitcher. And you can read all of the stories we discuss on The Upshot at theupshotpod.com. And find us on Twitter at theupshotpod. Until next time, I'm Leah Rose, and this is The Upshot. Easy.